Uh, please bear with me. You guys can tell I have a little bit of a cold and that uh, I haven't been able to shake for a couple of weeks. I know Will hasn't been able to shake one that he's had. And uh, be in prayer for the church members that are sick and out this morning. Uh, I know uh, Aaron and the girls are out and uh, Peter and Titus and not sure about the Harmons, but uh, yeah, just be in prayer for us and for health and Hopefully, we're not going to have the same thing that we experienced last year, uh, the plague of 2016 that rocked our church. Uh, if you weren't here for that, you can praise God for that. Uh, <laughs> what we're going to do uh, this morning is look at uh, kind of our vision about us, who we are, how we describe ourselves. Um, if you weren't here last week, you know that we kind of concluded our 13-month study through the Gospel According to Mark, and we are doing kind of a, a four- to five-week uh, recast of the Mountain Church, who we are, what we want to be about, what we seek to do, our mission, um, why do we exist, what do we value, and last week we looked kind of at our mission statement, that the Mountain Church exists to preach the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches. Uh, We stated that it it all starts and develops and continues because of the gospel. You can remember we we discussed that our goal of man, the goal of our church, is to glorify God by enjoying him, and it's only because of the gospel that we can enjoy God. It's only because of what Jesus has done on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection that we can experience God. We can experience right fellowship with God. We can experience reconciliation. We can experience the comfort, the joy, the hope, the peace that's in God. We talked about how our desire as a church is to spread this passion for the glory of God so that people can experience true joy. We talked about how we want to see lives flourish because of the gospel and the gospel saturating lives and relationships. We talked about this desire to preach the gospel because it overflows out of our love for God. It overflows out of a a savoring of God. It overflows out of a a love to share uh, with others the same love that we've received in Christ. And we want to spread this good news, this gospel, this life and peace and comfort and security that's offered to all people because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We talked about how ultimately it's God who works out this miracle of creating new hearts by bringing faith and repentance It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that lives are changed. I can thank God for that, and we can thank God for that. That's not depending on our efforts, because we would uh, would just take the church and drive it right into the ground. We would take the gospel and just destroy it. But by God's grace uh, and by his divine wisdom, he has ordained that people are going to hear the gospel. Lives are going to be transformed by us actually communicating it. I mean, that's just baffling to me, that he uses us to bring about life change in, in others. We talked about how we are the mouthpieces and the instruments to deliver that message, and this is why the gospel must be proclaimed. Because the Holy Spirit's not a preacher, and God has ordained that his people be his instruments, be his ambassadors. And I wrestled with, well, do I talk about who we are or what we do first? Do we talk about kind of a, our vision, our who we describe ourselves as a gospel-centered family, or do we talk about what we exist to do? What comes first? And I think we, we can't be a gospel-centered family if 
The gospel is not preached and disciples aren't made and churches aren't planted. So I don't know if it was, it was the right thing to do, but we decided to talk about what we do before who we are. But know that as a gospel-centered family, we exist to preach the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches. And, and that will create a gospel-centered family. That will create new gospel-centered families throughout the surrounding cities and beyond. So what I want to do this morning is just break down what do I mean by that phrase? What do we mean by that phrase? Gospel-centered family. Uh, It's important to know that and and who we are. Um, And it's important to know, number one, that at the Mountain Church, we we want to keep the gospel central. Without the gospel being central, uh, we're going to either be a bunch of irreligious, relativists, who kind of sin is just going to run rampant among us, or without the gospel being central, we're going to turn into uh, religious, moralists, uh, strict and stringy, without the gospel being central. So the gospel must be central. But if you're new to the church, or frankly, uh, you think you already know what the gospel is, it might be good to lay a foundation of what do we mean by the gospel? I love how Tim Keller describes it. One of the, the telltale signs that uh, someone doesn't believe the gospel is that they are certain that they do. <laughs> because the gospel is something that we will always come back to that will continually shape us and floor us and transform us as we come back to it again and again, as we are reminded of the truths of what Jesus has done for us. So the gospel is simple yet complex. It's cosmic yet personal. And this, this might be helpful if, if you are wondering, okay, how do, I, how do I share the gospel with my friends? Daniel, what are some ways that you talk about? This is generally how I, how I share the gospel, um, sometimes longer than this, sometimes shorter than this, but this is how I like to describe the gospel. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Christian faith, the, the word gospel simply means good news. It's the good news that God has rescued us to himself. Like I said, it's, it's cosmic and it's personal. It's simple yet complex. From a cosmic universal standpoint, The gospel is the message that God is redeeming his fallen creation through the coming of his kingdom in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's kind of a universal cosmic perspective. Uh, If you want a great book on the gospel, I really encourage you to read this book called Explicit Gospel by a guy named Matt Chandler. Uh, If you want a link to the Amazon site, or I'd I'd be happy to send it to you. It's a phenomenal book. He describes it as a gospel in the air, and gospel on the ground, a similar way to describe what I'm about to describe, uh, the, the cosmic perspective that God is redeeming his fallen creation through the coming of his kingdom in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we describe the creation as fallen because we believe this world is not as it should be. The world is not this great place that we should establish heaven on earth. It's not a utopia that everything exists perfectly. It seems like if you watch the news for any couple of days, <laughs> uh, you will, you'll see this and realize this. Um, we believe that although it, it is fallen, God originally created everything good. It was a peaceful place where life flourished. But we know now we live in a world that's full of poverty, full of racism, full of suffering, full of disasters. Uh, this is why there's aging and death. And uh, I would encourage you not to kind of, if you just look at the news without, apart from the gospel, you're going to get really discouraged, especially lately. Uh, The shootings, 
uh, the natural disasters, uh, what, what has come out of Hollywood with all these directors and producers and actors as being uh, politicians, uh, being with teenagers. I mean, it's just, it's sick. And it kind of seems like our society is kind of in a shock about it. And yet, you know, we, we worship sex and then we wonder why do people behave this way. Uh, but anyways, um, from a cosmic perspective, God has sent his son to put things right in our fallen, broken world. This is why he sent Jesus to inaugurate something that's called the kingdom of God, which I describe as his redemptive reign. A guy by the name of Jeff Christofferson says, the kingdom of God is when Jesus gets his way. So you want to see the kingdom? This is, when, this is what life would look like when Jesus gets his way. And when Jesus came into the world, he demonstrated this kingdom. He talked about it, he proclaimed it, and then he showed what it would look like. He showed this in healing the sick, in curing diseases, in giving sight to the blind, in raising the dead, in feeding the poor, in calming the storms. He showed signs of the kingdom and gave us a picture of what the world is going to look like in to come. So he developed and he deployed his kingdom through sending his church, sending his disciples to display the kingdom in reconciliation and care for the poor and love and relationships and equality in race and in culture. But it's important to know that the kingdom is not fully realized. Meaning when Jesus came into the world, he inaugurated it, but it's not complete. We're kind of in this engagement phase, a phrase that theologians and Bible teachers will call already, but not yet. This is, the, this is the, the world in between that we live in where Jesus is redeeming things, but it's not perfect. We still live in a world of racism and, and poverty and suffering. There's still evil. But the world is not all that it will be. One day, Jesus will come again. And he's gonna reconcile all things to himself. He's gonna establish a perfect world, a, a new garden in which there will be no racism, no sexism, no slavery, no uh, injustice, no death, no aging. And when Jesus returns, the world will be renewed and restored to how it was intended to function in perfect harmony. So that's, that's the gospel from the cosmic perspective. But from a, a personal perspective, what Matt Chandler would call the gospel on the ground, an individualistic perspective. The gospel is the message that individuals are rescued from peril through the person and work of Jesus by grace through faith. God created humanity to find happiness and satisfaction and purpose and value in him. We were created to glorify God. This is how God created Adam and Eve. But... Adam and Eve and all humanity in, in turn has turned from God. We do not glorify God. We do not live as we should. We have turned to ourself. We've turned to other created things to find this purpose, this enjoyment, this value, this identity apart from Christ. And this turning from God to self is what the Bible calls sin. When a good definition of sin, you call it self-centeredness. Turning from God, preferring things above God and, and sin manifests itself in injustice and greed and lust and selfishness in all kinds of evil. Now, when I grew up, I grew up in church. I grew up in, in the church, and I always thought that sin was just doing something. So, sin was committing adultery. Sin was lying, and that's true. But there is something beneath that. There's a, a root at what the sin is, and it's important that we talk about what is the essence of sin. And that is preferring anything above God. 
That's turning from God for satisfaction, for identity, for happiness, for joy, for value. This is how we need to describe sin. And sin, we know, is ultimately destructive. It does not lead to human flourishing. And because God is a good God and he is a loving father, he hates what is destructive for his creation. He hates what what hurts and damages and brings suffering to his creation. And this hatred for sin is what the Bible talks about as wrath, God's wrath. God's opposition and hatred of sin because God will not tolerate anything or anyone who is responsible for the destruction of his people. It's a good way to describe wrath. Now, this, this sin has caused a separation. This, this wrath that God has, has on, on people who are, are sinful causes separation, and it, it kind of destroys how we were intended to be. It creates a lot of problems for us. We're alienated from God. The separation corrupts every aspect of who we are, mentally, socially, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Humans now experience depression, shame, fear, and anxiety and other mental illness because of sin. Humans now experience uh, socially, we are prone to use others or be used by others. This is the reason for rape and abuse. Physically, we now experience sickness, pain, aging, and death. Like I talked about, I like to talk about too, we experience acne. I don't believe that acne was a part of how we were intended to be. It's very sinful (laughs) because we are fallen. We age. We die. This is all because of sin. Spiritually, we are alienated from God. Sin blinds humanity from seeing God as who he really is. We know that God is glorious. He's awesome. There's nothing better than him. And sometimes you can wonder, okay, I, I mean, I just am experiencing so much joy and freedom and satisfaction in this God. Won't, don't other people want to experience this? And they're blinded by sin. Apart from God's gracious intervention, humanity will be inalienated from God forever. So all creation, all humanity is in need of restoration and renewal, and the gospel is Jesus has come to set things right. Jesus has come to save. In love, God sent his only son, Jesus, to redeem, to reconcile his people from the effects of sin, from sin, from slavery, from death. Jesus did this by entering into humanity, by becoming a man and living a sinless life in perfect obedience to God. He lived the life that we were intended to live, perfect submission to the Father. And as our representative, Jesus died the death that we should have deserved. He served as our substitute. On the cross, he bore that wrath that we deserved, that should have been put on us. And he offers forgiveness to all. On the cross, Jesus not only offers redemption, but justification. His perfect and right standing with God is credited to those who trust in him. And we're not only redeemed and justified, but we are adopted. We are called sons and daughters of God. We are given a, a perfect identity and love from the Father that's freely given because of Jesus. We no longer have to work for an identity. We can work from an identity. In adoption, Jesus gives us his perfect status, approval, privileges, and rights to all believe. 
And Jesus promises that because he conquered death by raising from the grave on the third day, he will give everlasting life to all people who trust in him. So this is what I would describe as the gospel. This is how I, I describe it. Uh, what, is, what is the gospel? I mean, you can say it shorter than that. You can say it longer than that. But that is, that's how I like to describe gospel. Uh, cosmic, personal, on the ground, in the air. The gospel is good news. It's not something that we do. It's something that has already been done. So we, there's a response that must be had to the gospel. This is why at the Mountain Church we want to preach it, because we believe that all people need to hear it. We believe the gospel changes everything. It shapes everything. It has the power to change your life, to transform communities, to renew societies when its implications and applications are thought and felt out in it. The gospel is the only hope for the world. That is why we preach the gospel. And with that groundwork laid down, I, we need to look at the question, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? If you've been in the church the past couple of years, you know that's kind of a, a popular phrase, um, gospel-centered, gospel centrality. Again, there's some great books on what does it mean to be gospel-centered. There's a book, uh, Gospel-Centered Discipleship by a guy named Jonathan Dodson, which is a great book. Uh, there's a book called Christ-Centered Preaching. There's a book called uh, The Church, The Gospel Made Visible by Mark Dever. A lot of books that are coming out that are fantastic resources. There's a book called Gospel Fluency, which talks about how we can be fluent in the gospel and how we can center our lives on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Those are all great books I'd recommend reading. But we want to be centered on the gospel at the Mountain Church. We want to be centered. We believe that the person and work of Jesus is at the center of the Bible, that the gospel is at the center of everything God does. So we want that to be the center of everything that we do. Uh, but Jesus records in, in Mark, or Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted all things in the scripture concerning himself. So we believe that, every, I mean, it's all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus in the Bible, about knowing him, trusting him, and what he has done for us on the cross. We want to keep the gospel central in the life of our church because the gospel is never something that we move on from. The gospel is something that we continually come back to. And primarily we get this, I think, from 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at this verse last week, 1 Corinthians 15.1, where Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel by which you have been saved and which you are being saved, by which you are standing. The gospel is something that we need to be rooted in, centered on, because we believe the gospel is not merely a truth that saves once you believe it one time, but the gospel is the power of God that continually transforms as you continually believe in it. We know that the gospel can be removed from the center of a church. If you've been in, in a in church before, maybe you had the sad experience of, of being in a church where maybe the gospel wasn't kept center and it was kind of very legalistic or moralist or religious. Uh, one of the best pictures we get of this in the scriptures is Paul's letter to the church of Galatia. If you have your Bibles, uh, open with me to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians, we see a picture of Paul that uh, is pretty frank. He shoots it straight with the church of Galatia, doesn't he? <laughs> I know Will loves the book of Galatians. Um, it's, a, it's a book that honestly may, might ruffle your feathers as you read it because you think, man, Paul is, uh, 
He's pretty angry, but it's because he was so passionate about the gospel. And he was so passionate about people trusting and believing in the gospel. In Galatians 1, starting in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The church in Galatia has turned from the one true gospel. And Paul says, not that there is another one in verse seven, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to how passionate he is about the gospel. He says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's not soft language from Paul. He says, as we said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Please know, and I, I pray, I honestly pray that if myself, if Will, if Nathan, if we ever get off this gospel, that God would just curse us. I pray that because it will lead you astray. It will lead to hurt. It will lead to false hope. It will lead to suffering. I pray that if God ever leads you on from the mountain church, that you will find a church that is gospel-centered, that if there are pastors, if there are churches who are not centered on the gospel, that God would curse them or that God would send you there to get them back on the gospel. We want to be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel shapes and transforms everything we do. We include it in our mission. I mean, everything starts with the gospel. We include it in our strategies. We include it in our language. We call them gospel communities for a reason. We want to be formed and transformed and, and apply the gospel in community. We want to fight to believe that Jesus is more satisfying and fulfilling than anything else this world has to offer. We want to preach the gospel in, in our Sunday gatherings and what we call this time right here together as we gather together. So I try the best that I can to preach Christ from all of Scripture, to preach messages that are centered on the gospel. This is why we, we sing songs that are centered on the gospel. This is why we remember the Lord's Supper every week. We want to be reminded of the gospel. This is why in our gospel communities, we demonstrate and apply the gospel in relationships. The gospel of, should affect you. It should transform the way you live. And we need each other's help to work this out and to see how it's applied out and see how we can help each other apply this out in community. I believe that the gospel creates a new kind of community because it changes our hearts and our identities. It changes us from a people who are enslaved by what people think about us. It changes us from trying to prove ourselves to others. It changes us from trying to use others for our benefit. It makes us a people who are freed to love one another. We don't give so that we can give something back. We don't love with strings attached. We, we don't speak nicely of someone so that they will speak nicely of us and we can just puff ourselves up. We are free to really love one another, to give ourselves freely. We are now no longer defined by what we do. 
We're no longer defined by our careers. We're no longer defined by our race, our, our, our culture, our, our appearance, because our identity is in Christ. In a gospel community, we can conduct ourselves in, in authenticity, in transparency, and in, in honesty. And I really think it would, for those outside of of the gospel community, for those looking in, they would think, what is going on in that group? They're different. They really love one another. It's kind of weird. So the gospel is, is center in the life of the mountain church. Um, again, it must be kept central be, because there's kind of a tendency that we might fall into, a, a, a religion or an irreligion. Uh, the gospel leads us out of a legalistic perspective uh, that believes that growth and maturity in Christ-likeness is found out of obeying rules. But the gospel also leads us out of a moralistic or a, a relativist uh, kind of mentality that uh, the gospel doesn't really transform us at all. And God's grace is an enabling force to keep us in sin. That's not what the gospel is. Uh, one of the ways that I think you can, you can help me in this, and please help me be a better preacher of the gospel is by, okay, Daniel, how did you preach the gospel this week? What was your driving force? Because I've, I've been guilty of this and I've listened to many a sermon that ultimately are, are very religious. And they, they exegete the text, which is great. They, they dig stuff out of the, the text, but ultimately it comes down to, this is what the Bible says. You need to do it. Or if you don't do this, you're bad. There can be motivating factors out of guilt or shame. But please know that when I try to communicate the law, the scriptures, what Jesus commands, everything has to come out of a desire and a motivation and an understanding in the gospel. So one of the ways that I've seen this and have had conversations with you guys this year is our focus, our passion, our uh, desire to be people that share the gospel. I believe that Christians should be people who share the gospel. It shouldn't be something that we do once a year. It shouldn't be something that just pastors do, that just missionaries do. It should be something that all disciples do. But of course, we know, I know, I've talked with many of you that sharing the gospel isn't something that you do often, or it's something that you're trying to do, or it's something new that we're working towards. And when we talk about, okay, we should be sharing the gospel, we need to be talking about Jesus, we should be uh, sharing the love of Christ with others, please do not take that as, and I've said this a bunch, but I, I don't think I can say it enough and not repeat it enough, don't take that as, well, Daniel said I need to do it, so I'm just going to do it to make him happy. Or Nathan said that we need to be sharing the gospel, so I'm just going to share the gospel. When we talk about how as Christians, we need to be sharing the gospel. It is because we love God. It is because of the gospel. It is because of the belief in that, man, God's grace that he's bestowed on me is awesome. It's scandalous. I cannot stop talking about it. And if you look at your heart and you say, okay, I don't have a desire to talk about Jesus. I don't have a desire to share Jesus. I don't have a desire to share the gospel what we are trying to get is look at your heart. What are you not believing? 
is the gospel something that is really central in your life? Are you really cherishing and holding on to the gospel? Does that make sense? I want us to be really rooted in why, what we mean by this. Because in other, other ways, it's going to be uh, the two kind of tendencies, the structures are you're going to be driven by guilt and shame, or you're just going to kind of stay in your, your complacency, you're going to stay in your, your spiritual laziness, you're going to stay in your comfort of, well, God has grace on me, so I don't need to do anything. You know, that's not what the grace of God does. It's, it's a transformative power. So I just want to be clear on that as we move forward. Uh, this is why we want to center it in the gospel. And this is why if uh, you can help me as a, a preacher, you can help uh, us as leaders, we can help you to be centered, to make all of our lives about the gospel. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Okay. Uh, because the main, I think the main reason of sin and, and our struggles come from our... Uh, tendency, our, the way we, like the great song, uh, Come Thou Fountain says, we're prone to wander. We're prone to set up these idols in our heart. We're prone to turn from God to worship created things, that we need to hear the gospel again and again to bring us back. We need to hear that Jesus is better than TV. We need to hear that Jesus is more comforting than alcohol. We need to hear that Jesus is more comforting than the approval of man. We need to hear that your identity is rooted in what Christ has done, not how good of a parent you are, not good to have how of a, a coworker you are, how good of a wife you are, how, how good your kids are. We need to be reminded of that all the time. I know I do. I know my, my biggest idol is that I base my identity, my worth on the church, on you guys, on, oh man, uh, Kyle, he was just tracking with me the whole sermon. He was just giving me thumbs up. He was shaking his head. He was fist bumping me. I feel awesome. That was sweet. What a great day. Wow, that was cool. But the next Sunday, oh man, Abby and Katie and Marissa, they were on their phone. They were falling asleep. They were not with me. Man, my sermon must have been terrible. You know, I, I feel really bad. And, and ask yourself of, of your heart. You know, maybe uh, a, co- a coworker said something really nice to you or your boss acknowledged something. You're like, oh, wow, I feel amazing. And you put your, your happiness, you put your value, you put your identity on what people say about you. Whatever it is, all of us are going to have different idols and different problems of belief in the gospel. But we need to be continually reminded of it because we're prone to look away from Christ for purpose, for satisfaction and value. Other things become, quote, functional saviors. So the functional savior might be, man, I'm having a really bad, stressful day. Uh, I need something to comfort me, to give me pleasure. So I'm gonna get some coffee. Oops, I shouldn't have said that as my wife is drinking coffee. (laughs) I've had a really rough week. I'm just gonna have a couple beers provide comfort. Uh, I'm going to, I need a savior. Or maybe you're, if you're single, hell is being single. I need a savior who's going to rescue me from hell. I need, I need someone to, I need a, I need a a boyfriend, a girlfriend, I need a spouse, someone who's going to save me from this hell of singleness. Or a 
okay, my wife doesn't love me. I, I need someone that's going to love me. Let's have some kids. I know that sounds really crazy to say that, but people really have that kind of reason in having kids. It's, yeah. Anyways, whatever it is, uh, other things become functional saviors. So we need each other. We need each other in, in community to say, hey, Kelly, you said a couple things today that, you know, maybe let's, let's talk about what are you believing or Jake, man, you're complaining a lot about your boss lately. You know, whatever it is, we need each other to help identify what those are. And this is our desire and focus to be gospel centered. We don't just want to be gospel centered. We want to be a gospel centered family. What does it mean to be family? Why did we describe this language of family? Uh, the Mountain Church desires to be a family of God who is centered and saturated in the gospel. And this is one of the most common analogies and descriptions of the church is family. Paul describes in Ephesians 2.19, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fedo, fedo, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. If you want like a flag verse, a central verse in our who we are, this is it, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. We're built on the apostles, we're built on the scriptures, we're built on Christ, and we're being built, developed into a family, a household of God. That word that is used there uh, can refer to a social unit living together. It refers to a family, a family of servants, family of extended family, uh, just understood to be a family. When you see household of God, that's what is getting at there, the family of God. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church is the family of of God. The New Testament uh, describes the church and Christians as children of God, heirs with Christ. Jesus himself taught that disciples were his true brothers and sisters. His true brothers and sisters were those who did the will of the Father in heaven. In Mark 3, verses 31, they're described the story of Jesus's biological mothers and brothers coming out. They stand outside to him and they call him. The crowd is sitting around him and they said to him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're calling for you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now we know that Jesus did not reject his biological family. He loved his, his mother, Mary. In fact, as he was dying on the cross, he he honored her by providing a son for her. But I believe, and I mean, historians and theologians believe that Jesus had other brothers and sisters, but Jesus didn't choose one of his biological brothers to care for Mary. He chose John, the, apostle, the disciple that he loved. I think even then showing us this, this spiritual family that Jesus is creating. John 1.11 says that, Jesus came down, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, Christians, disciples who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
not who were born by blood, nor by will of the flesh, nor by will of man, but of God. Romans 12, 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, familial love. Ephesians 5, 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Interesting, as you start picking up on this idea of church as family, it all of this language just jumps out in the letters. That you can't, it seems like you can't read a letter, you can't read an epistle in the New Testament without seeing this phrase. That Paul referring to Christians, he calls them brothers and sisters. Romans 1.13, I don't want you to be aware, brothers. 1 Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. It's all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. That's how he opens 2 Corinthians with brothers. That's how he opens Galatians 1, brothers and sisters. You see brothers and sisters in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 1 John, 3 John, Revelation. So a lot of books in the New Testament refer to brothers and sisters. Paul also refers to Timothy as his son. He says in 1 Timothy 1, 2, my to Timothy, my true child in the faith. He says in his second letter to Timothy, Timothy, my dear son. He writes to Timothy on how the church is to relate to one another. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, when I read through the New Testament, I see these phrases, I don't think that they are nice labels. I don't think that there's some sort of superficial meaning behind this. I really think that there was a deep love for his fellow Christians that he referred to them as brothers and sisters. Do we have this kind of love for Christians, for those in our church? I even started thinking about the only person I call my brother is my brother Micah. Why don't I? Will is just as much my brother, isn't he? Carrie, could be brothers. <laughs> Graduate from parishioner. <laughs> what would it look like if we loved each other as a brother and a sister? It would be deep, wouldn't it? The church is the family of God. Now, I know, sadly, many come from broken, dysfunctional, abusive families. So this language of family does not conjure up good memories. And even an idea of what family should look like will be stained because of biological family. This also rings true of fathers. It many, for many people, it's hard to call God father because... They have a bad uh, relationship or experience with their earthly father. Instead of having a, a biological father who looked to serve them and lead them and protect them and love the family, many have grown up without fathers, with emotionally distant fathers, or abusive fathers who have destroyed the family. But know that sin has tainted and distorted family and the roles of its members and fathers and family members don't function in the way that they were tended. But because of the gospel, he redeems and reconciles that. Because of the gospel, uh, we now have a new father. 
We are former orphans that are gathered together in the family of God. We have new brothers and sisters. The church is our new spiritual family. And although we might not be related by flesh and bone, we are related by Jesus' blood. And, and I believe that Jesus' blood is more powerful, it's more unifying than any other blood. Would they say that blood is thicker than water? I mean, that biological families, you know, are thicker than friendships. I would say that Jesus' blood is the thickest. <laughs> Once you're in his family, you can't get, you're not going to leave. Jesus' blood is powerful. And in the church, we recognize our, our true brothers and sisters. We call and our true father. We cling to and revere God as a loving, personal, accessible father who's not distant or inaccessible or uninterested. Our Heavenly Father will never disappoint us. He'll never abuse us. He'll never forsake us. And his love and acceptance and delight for us is perfect because it's the same delight that he has for his own son, Jesus. That's what we mean by gospel-centered family. But let's get kind of practical here. What are some, let's try to think through, let's try to flesh out this. What does it mean to be family? What does it mean for us as a church to be Family. I think number one, it means that we would spend time together. That we would eat together. We would laugh together. We would cry together. Some other practical ways I think this could look is uh, families can open up their homes to singles who need a place to stay. And they can love them and treat them as if they were part of their own family. We can love one another as family not only by sharing meals together, but time and money, and resources. We can bear one another's burdens. We can be honest and intimate in relationship. Uh, married couples could invest in a, a single, a two, three, invite them regularly into their home, bless them with familial love. We see this already in our church, and I love it. I hope that by God's grace, it continues and multiplies and grows. Singles could also reach out to a family or a married couple and build relationships of love and sacrificial service. Empty nesters could come along those who have young kids to offer love, support, babysitting, mentoring, etc. Because when we think about it, what, how can people experience the love of God in, in this kind of familiar relationship if they are orphaned, if they are widowed, if they are divorced, um, and we are so kind of isolated or in exclusive in our biological family. Families without kids or with kids or empty nesters could consider adoption or foster care, showing the love of Christ with those who don't have a biological family. The question that I want us to think about this week is what would it look like for different people of race, social economic class, political party, culture, different bloodlines coming together and loving one another as family. It would, it would be what we want to create, what we are designed, the culture, the DNA, the, everything that we want to be about at the Mountain Church. We're, we're doing holidays together. We're vacationing together. We're inviting others into our family who don't have a family. 
I think if we lived like this, it would highlight and reflect the unity of Christ's body. It would highlight the power of the blood of Jesus. It would glorify God who cares about reconciliation and unity. It would magnify the power of the blood of Christ that brings enemies together as family. And I want to be uh, realistic and clear because know that uh, although we want to be a family that's centered on the gospel, although we want to be a family of Christ's love, we are going to fail each other. We are going to hurt each other. We're not perfect. We're not a perfect family. So we, we have to think through, okay, the question is not, well, what happens if we have conflict? What happens when we have conflict? I want to caution and, and uh, warn and talk about some things that can destroy community and family and what we are trying to create at the Mountain Church. First of it being gossip. Gossip will destroy what we are trying to do. Gossip will destroy unity. It will destroy trust. It will destroy intimacy. We have a responsibility not only to not gossip, but to protect the unity of the church as we diffuse it. As if someone comes to us talking negatively about someone else or sharing something that they shouldn't, we have a responsibility to direct them back to the person and resolve it then. What will destroy family is not handling conflict the right way. Now, again, we all come from different up, upbringings. We all handle conflict differently. I, I tend to handle conflict by avoiding it at all costs and by just bottling it deep down inside so that it'll never, never affect anyone. The reality is that never happens. You cannot bottle down. That's just not how it works. Sooner or later, it comes out and I explode. Our bitterness is harbored. Other people might have it, like Steph and I are very opposite in our handlings of conflict. And there seems to be kind of two extremes that I've seen in people and in my friends. One being mine, like I hate conflict, not gonna deal with it. I'm just gonna wall it up, pretend like everything's okay. But then it comes out subtly in the way I talk to her or, <laughs> or explode. But there's another way of, all conflict is dealt head on and this is going to get right in your face and we're going to deal with it right then. And I love Stephanie because she's helped me so much in this area and I love Will for this too because uh, they have helped me grow so much and conflict has to be dealt with. If you have a problem with me, if you have a problem with one of our leaders, if you have a problem with one another, if I have a problem with you, we have to talk to one another in a healthy way. Meaning, I have a problem with Barb. The first person I'm talking to is Barb. The first person I'm not going to talk to is everyone else. That's going to destroy what we're trying to create. It's going to destroy. We also have to trust that there's good intentions. If someone says, if Micah or Megan, you guys say something to me that's true and I need to hear but yet I don't like the way that you said it. I know because I love you guys and you love me that I trust that you have good intentions. 
That's another thing that's going to destroy what we're trying to do here. Assuming or believing that we have bad intentions. It's not coming out of love. So we just want to say that on the front end because gossip and slander will destroy what we're trying to do as a gospel community. It will destroy our church. The Bible has really strong words to talk about this. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. I don't think that's a suggestion. Paul says, only talk what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What if we, what if we talk to each other like that? Man, we wouldn't complain, would we? Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. See the destructive power of, of gossip, of slander. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. Matthew 12.36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Does that scare you? <laughs> Scares me, man. Like, oh, wow. Do we think about what we say? We think about that, that should be building up. Pride, assuming negative attentions, gossip, slander will destroy. So church, family, we have a responsibility to prize and protect community from these things. We need the gospel to do this. In ourselves, we're gonna destroy this. Humanity left with our natural self will not love their enemies. They will not love those who are like them. Will was just reading me a passage today from Matthew 5. Says, but what good is it if you just love the people that love you? Doesn't everyone do that? Humanity left with their natural self will not love enemies. Is the reason there's so much racism and division and separation of class and neighborhood segregation. Because we need the gospel, we need to believe the gospel, we need to be centered in the gospel to treat one another as family. We need the gospel to love people that are different than you in this kind of intimate way. But when you do this, it gives you such a better appreciation of the gospel. It's this beautiful relationship. I can share my experience from uh, the, the gospel community that Steph and I are, are blessed to be a part of, that we have our family time on Sunday afternoon. I've said this to them before, so hopefully it doesn't jar them or it's not a slight in any way, but the people that are in my, our Sunday gospel community are people that I would normally not hang out with. We don't share a lot of common interests. There's people that we have different ages. We are in totally different life stages. We are in uh, different political parties, maybe. We have different races, but yet, we love one another, and it's sweet, and it's given me such a better appreciation of the gospel because I can say, okay, it's not, it's not myself, it's not our common interests, it's not our bloodlines, it's the gospel that unifies us. Because of the gospel, we can love others as our own family, and we can do anything for them. We can want to spend time with them. 
time with my gospel family is the highlight of my week. And it's led me to appreciate, to delight, to cherish the gospel more deeply. It's led to a more deep, fulfilling friendships and know that this is our vision. This is our hope. This is our joy. Gospel centrality that creates this family. Now, if you're more curious about what that means or practically how that can live out, uh, I'd love to talk with you. I know Will would love to talk with you. I know Nathan would love to talk with you. What does it mean to be family? And that's a question I think we need to be asking ourselves throughout the week. How do we love each other as a good family? This is, this is what we want to be about. But it only happens because of the gospel. So what we're going to do now is, like we always do each week, we're going to move into a time where we remember the gospel. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, you don't know Jesus, but based on something that I said or something that we sang earlier, you have some questions. This gospel sounds pretty cool. Jesus sounds pretty unique. I want to know him. I want to trust him. I want to love him. I would love to talk with you. I would love to, to get a burger with you or a smoothie or a coffee or a tea or go for a walk. Anything. <laughs> Will and Nathan would say the same thing. We want to get to talk to you about Jesus. We love Jesus and we want to talk to you about it. But after that, after we celebrate a time of communion, we're going to sing together. We're going to sing songs that are focused on the gospel. So if, if, again, if you have any questions or you don't call yourself a believer, I'd ask that you, you don't eat with us, you don't share this meal with us, but you instead you talk to me about it. But know that now the table's going to be open and you can come at your own pace and we can sing together and, and love one another as family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church and these brothers and sisters that you have uh, created, that you have called, that you have placed in fellowship with us. I thank you for your grace and your goodness. That it's not, it's not left up to me because I would just, uh, man, we would just destroy this thing, we would blow it up. But by your grace, Lord, you have uh, created uh, something that I think is special something that I haven't experienced before but is sweet and beautiful. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would grow us closer together. That as we come together and we sing each week, as we gather together in our homes, as we serve alongside one another, as we party together, that you would unify us. Lord, your scriptures say that uh, the world will know that we're disciples by our love for one another. So, Father, I pray that as we do this, as we love each other, as we love our neighbors, as we love those who are not like us, that others might be interested, that they, they might be curious about what is it about this church, about these people that makes them act the way they do, and we can give no other explanation than it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for everything that you've done in our church for how you are growing us closer together. Father, we pray that by your grace, other people might get to experience what we are experiencing. That coworkers, that neighbors, that broken people, that orphans and widows and people who are not like us might get to experience the love of Christ because of uh, us working and flowing through that love that you have showed us. 
Father, may that root us, may that ground us, and by your grace, as we come, continue to come back to the gospel, would you transform us to be more like your son, Jesus, and would lives be changed for your glory and for our joy. We love you, Father. We ask that you are glorified now as we sing to you, and as we glorify you, and as we pray to you. In your son's name, I, I pray. Amen.